0: starting our series of studies in the book of uh, Jonah, a short book, just four chapters, and we will do a chapter a week. So we will do in four weeks. And soon after that, we will look at the book of Nahum, because book, both the books, Jonah as well as uh, Nahum deals with the city of Nineveh. couple of introductory thoughts before we go into another you know, verses. And The book of Jonah is simultaneously pathetic as well as hilarious. There's a commentator who has uh, given four headings for these four chapters. And for chapter one, he has given the heading as, I won't go. For chapter two, he has given the heading, okay, I will go. For chapter three, the heading is, here I am. And chapter four, I knew I shouldn't have come. That, if you notice, summarizes the content of the book of Jonah. But the joke is actually on Jonah. Since God fulfills God's purpose by way of Jonah, even though Jonah remains thoroughly uncooperative till the very end. The Galilean city of gath Hefer, which was a country area, a rural area, so likely that he grew up in a poor family. He was uh, the prophet during the reign of Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the second. Now uh, Assyria, Nineveh was the capital. Assyrian empire was a constant threat you know, to the nation of Israel. And the contemporary prophets you know, during uh, Jonah's time was Hosea and Amos who constantly kept telling the people that God would use uh, the Assyrians to bring about punishment against the Israelites. Okay, Now God tells Jonah in this scenario to say, hey, I want, you go, I want you to go and speak to the people of Nineveh. The judgment is coming. You better repent. So try and put yourself in Jonah's shoes at this time. Okay. One prophet is speaking about the judgment that will come from the Assyrians because of the disobedience of the Israelites. So obviously they would want the Assyrian army to suffer, to be destroyed. But now God is saying, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital city, which was a very notorious city. I want you to ask them to to repent in 40 days time, in in a short while. Before judgment is going to come upon you. No wonder Jonah was hesitant because the people would have thought that the Assyrians should be destroyed because lest they are going to bring about punishment to the Israelites. Now God is telling Jonah to go and preach to these people a message of judgment, okay, a message of judgment. But he did not want these people to repent, he wanted them to suffer so that they would not bring about the punishment. To the children of Israel. That's the scenario for this particular book. The author, the name specifically, it is not mentioned, so the book is anonymous because there's no clear indication in the passage of scripture to say that Jonah wrote it. But obviously, this is like a first person account that has been written after he came from Nineveh, after his return, after all the incident has happened in a He is narrating it so that this will be an object lesson for the children of Israel and also for us. The dating for this period would be during the reign of uh, Jeroboam. This is the time that Jonah prophesied. So since Jeroboam's uh, second reign was between 782 to 753 BC, the book of Jonah was probably written sometime between the middle of the eighth and the end of the third centuries. A little background to uh, you know, Jonah, as we have mentioned, he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam second. Jeroboam was the grandson of Jehovah, who ruled in Israel from 814 to 798 BC. And because of the sins of Jehovah, Israel was oppressed by the Arameans. But the Lord was compassionate to them and he spared their destruction from this oppression. Jeroboam's father Jehoash capitalized on this freedom from the Aramean oppression and began to expand Israel's horizons and boundaries. Though Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as we read in Second Kings chapter fourteen and verse twenty-four. In Second Kings fourteen and verse twenty-five, the passage of Scripture which gives us a reference you know, to the historicity of Jonah and the time period that he was prophesying, that passage speaks us that you know, even though he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, he expanded Israel even further than his father did, matching the boundaries of the days of David and Solomon, and this was according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel which is spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from gath Hepher. So 2 Kings 14.25 very clearly tells us that Jonah was indeed a historical person. He was a prophet. He lived and ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II. Even though a lot of people would be skeptical and say, Hey, Jonah is just a story. It's a fish story. It is not really an actual incident that happened. No, no. The scripture definitely speaks about his presence as a historical individual in the book of Second Kings, chapter 14 and verse 25. So here was Jonah trying to uh, minister during this time when Jeroboam has expanded his territory. Seemingly, when the Assyrians are not as powerful at this time and God tells him, look at this, the mission that I'm giving to you. I want you to go and speak to Nineveh, a message of judgment. Remember, the message is not to say, these are the sins that you are committing, not a question of pinpointing the errors, but saying God's judgment is going to come upon you. Okay. Now, he would have been happy with the message of judgment, you know, but he knew in his heart of hearts that God is a compassionate God. If they repent, they will... And I, they will definitely be forgiven. He did not want that to happen. He was happy to give a message of judgment, but in his heart of hearts, he knew that God was a compassionate God because just in this period also, God has been compassionate to the Israelites in spite of their disobedience and you know, enabled them to get victory over the Arameans. And at this time, the Assyrians are also not that very powerful. All these things are background information for us to keep in mind so that we understand the content of the Book of Jonah, having understood the context behind it. Now the meaning of his name, his name means dove, very interesting, peaceful, (laughs) okay? And his father's name, Amittai, means faithful. Now, I wonder whether he lived up to his name or he lived up to his father's name. And it says, the son of Amittai, faithful. Jonah proved to be anything but a son of faithfulness. Okay. But the interesting part of it is, in the midst of his unfaithfulness, you know, by the end of chapter one of Jonah, he got converted. He didn't preach to them, you know, but God used him. To transform their lives, okay? So the key to this book, what is the key verse, if you were to say, is Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11, where God raises this question, a rhetorical question, and tells Jonah this, should I not be concerned about that great city? Should I not be concerned about that great city? Oftentimes we want to, you know, God to answer our questions. But here, the book of Juna, God is asking a question. Should I not be concerned? Should I not be compassionate? Here are you guys living the way you want to. I'm a compassionate God. I'm saying judgment will come so that you will respond back. Here's a pagan nation. I'm saying I'm a compassionate God. If they turn around, they will respond. And even in the end of this chapter, the compassion of God moves the sailors who are pagans who are worshiping their own pagan gods, cried out to their own gods, and you know, they finally pray to Yahweh and they make a vow to him. They themselves, if you were to say, are converted. So the whole emphasis, and you know, the key on this book is the compassion of God in the midst of the disobedience of the Israelites. If only the Israelites will turn to him, God's compassion and mercy will be willing to forgive. So this is the primarily object lesson, if you were to say, from the book of Jonah. Now, who is the main character in this book? You know, what do you think? You know, big fish, even though it's mentioned four times. It is not the great city of Nineveh, which is mentioned nine times. Jonah, the disobedient prophet, who is mentioned 18 times. But God is the main character because he is mentioned 38 times in this particular book. Okay, So this book is dealing with God is the central figure. This book is dealing with God's compassion to an individual who turns around in repentance. And if a person does not turn around in repentance, what's going to be the end result? Now, what's the credibility of this book? As we mentioned in second Kings chapter 14 and verse 25, we read that we have here a real person and a real story, okay? This is an incident that actually happened to a real person, okay? So, was there any other evidence for that apart from the Bible? Archaeological evidence for the occupation of this site during the lifetime of Jonah has also been found, okay? So, Jonah's tomb is also there. So, that's evidence that Jonah was indeed a historical person. Thirdly, and most important of it all, is Jesus himself substantiates Jonah's name, his prophetic office, his story, and thus this book as well. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, this is what Jesus himself said. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. So the Lord Jesus himself authenticates Jonah and gives him as a, example, as a proof, if you were to say, you know, of what's going to happen even in the life of Jesus, you know, that is enough of evidence for us to say, hey, Jonah is definitely a historical book, a historical person, not a myth, not just a story. What about the uniqueness of the book of Jonah and Jonah himself? Number one, Jonah is a prophet more by what he is and does than by what he says. We notice all the other prophets, you know, the prophets spoke, okay, thus saith the Lord, okay, and they gave a message to the people. But Jonah is very different. He speaks to the people, not so much so by what he says, by what he does. So Jonah was a man of very few words, but his works, his deeds, were the ones which were highly prophetic. Jonah was a graphic representation of the nation of Israel. Just as Jonah received a clear message from God, similarly, the nation of Israel also had a message from God, but they disappeared. So it was like an object lesson rather than a message through words. Secondly, Jonah was the only prophet who is recorded as having run away from God speak about their holiness their purity their commitment but jonah is not known for his piety in a piety in fact jonah is known more from his rebellion for his disobedience for his hardness of heart and this again typifies the rebellion of the nation of israel Moses, in a centuries earlier in exodus chapter 20 32 and verse 9 i have seen these people and behold, they are an obstinate people, so Jonah's obstinacy was the same, like the nation of Israel, in spite of all that God did for them, they were obstinate, they refused to obey God. Thirdly, Jonah is a prophet who is unique not only by his waywardness but also because the book never portrays him as having repented, okay you don't find enough jonah repenting it's only jonah sulking under that tree you know now that is also a symbolic thing to emphasize in spite of all that god has done for the nation of israel they still refused they still refused and finally when the lord jesus himself came in to pay the sins of the nation of israel and for the sins of the whole world <laughs> still they rejected him they did not turn around to him so all these things are like you know symbolism, object lessons, and you know, from Jonah's life, not only to the nation of Israel primarily, but also for each one of us. So let's look, look at the passage this evening and learn from the different verses. In verses 1 to 3, we read about Jonah's attempt to run from God. In verse 1 and 2, we find God's call to Jonah, which says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Look at the three commands over there. Arise, go, and cry out. Arise, go, and cry out. So the Lord comes and tells Jonah, you go. And what is Jonah's response? He says, no. I said you must go. Jonah says, No, I'm not going to go. you know, But just because you know, man said no to God, did God you know, listen and was his purposes for the nation of Israel thwarted? No, not at all. And that's an important lesson that we must remember. We may say I'm saying no to God, but God's purposes you know, would be fulfilled. He's going to turn things around. You know. It may be a storm. It may be a struggle. It may be some issues that you are going to face. But finally, God is the sovereign one. His purpose will be fulfilled. So, the NASB puts it like this: "Cry against the city." The NIV puts it as "Preach against it." Okay. So, it is not a question of an. uh, informing that this is the wrong that you are doing. Now, the issue is judgment is going to come. Judgment is imminent. Now, the city of Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire and was a large and prominent city in its day. So God is calling Jonah to go to this pagan Gentile city and call them to repentance. Now, if you take a contemporary map, you will find the city of Mosul. You know of Nineveh was directly opposite that at that particular time. So this is called as a great city, great city, but also a city full of wickedness, full of wickedness. Now in verse three, when God has told him to go to no to Nineveh, in verse three we find that Jonah attempts to flee from God's call. God. He's attempting, you know, he's trying, you know, he's trying, you know. Let me run away. Let me see if I can succeed. Verse three tells us, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you notice, there are some key words in this uh, particular verse. Obviously the first one is, but God told him to go. He said, but, okay. And then the second key word is, you know, twice it is mentioned, he rose to flee from the presence of God, okay, presence of God. At the end of the verse, again, he says to go with them to Tashish from the presence of God. So his fleeing was not to Tashish. his fleeing was primarily to go to away from the presence of God. So the first point that he goes to is Joppa. Joppa was an important, you know, uh, port uh, in a city in uh, the nation of Israel. In the New Testament times, we find that Simon the Tanner lived over here, and Tabitha, you know, was raised from the dead from this particular town, okay? Now Nineveh was 500 miles northeast, okay, and from Joppa to Tarshish was Two thousand miles west, you know. In other words, God told him to go in one direction. He decides to go to the exactly opposite direction. Okay. Now, why did Jonah flee? Why did Jonah flee? Important thoughts we would have, you know. First of all, he didn't want to do what God told him to do. Remember, right in the beginning, we said this, in a his desire was not that the nation of you know, Syria or the city of Nineveh would repent. That was not his desire one bit, okay? So this is why for him, it would have been a difficult job to do. It would have been a difficult job to do. In his heart, he's saying, I want these guys to perish and die. On the other hand, God is saying, I want you to go and preach a message of judgment so that they will turn around and respond to me, okay? so. It was a difficult job for him to do, so he says, no, I don't want to do this, you know, (laughs) okay. Also, because he did not want the Assyrians in in a way to escape God's judgment, you know. He says, these guys are horrible guys. These guys are very wicked people. Remember, they were a cruel and heartless people who showed no mercy to their enemies. In fact, they were known to bury their enemies alive impale people on sharp poles in the hot sun, and even skin people alive. This is the type of, you know, people, you know, that were there in, in a way. Now, to an enemy, to such a harsh, you know, you know, violent enemy, God is saying, look, I want these guys to respond, you know, and I'm going to use you to bring the message of judgment so that they repent and turn around. Now, he did not want that. He did not obviously want his enemies, you know, to come to know him. Now, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, when we are speaking about evangelism, when God is saying, I want you to go and preach the gospel, to whom? You know, he's saying, I want you to go and preach the gospel to these hardcore people, you know, who are upsetting you, who are troubling you. And say, God, these guys are upsetting me. They are troubling me. They are out to kill me. Why should I go and speak to them? I wish that they would die. That's the type of approach that Jonah has taken. Thirdly, he thought you know, that if he ran away, maybe God will select some other person, okay? you know, Rather than track him down and make him go, he thought, okay, I'm not going, you know, God will send somebody else. After all, it is his purpose, you know, he wants to get the people of Nineveh to turn around to him. He will do his job, you know. Oftentimes we think like that. God gives us a mission and we say, no, I don't want to do the mission because it's too difficult. You know, these guys are horrible guys. They are beyond redemption. I don't want them to be a part of the family because this is what they have done to me. And on the other hand, they say, Lord, if that's what you really want, that these people should come to know you, fine, you are somebody else, not me. That is the approach that people have when they want to disobey what God has tell, told them. Remember, God told Jonah to go and preach. And each one of us has been given that great commission, isn't it? Go into all the world, you know? make disciples, make disciples. You know? So with Jonah's example before us, we have even less reason than Jonah for our disobedience. If the call has come to us, go and make disciples. And we are not doing that responsibility, that mission that God has given to us and we are running away as far away as possible, be careful, purposes for your life will still be fulfilled. It may be through means that you may not like whatsoever. Now, secondly, why did you go to Tarshish? Why did you go to Tarshish? The distant city of Tarshish was thought to be towards the end of the earth. Okay. It was as far on the other side as possible. Nineveh was to the east of Israel and Tarshish was about as far as you could go west. <coughs> so in heading for Tarshish, Jonah intended to get as far away from Nineveh and the calling of God to go there as he possibly could. Now Tarshish, by the way, was the name of the great grandson of Noah through Noah's son Japheth and Japheth's son Javan. And from then on, you find the descendants of this man and wherever he se- they settled was named as Tashish. okay? Now, thirdly, find that his main concern was not to go to Tashish. The main concern was to go away from the presence of God. That is why, if you notice in that verse, twice it is mentioned away from the presence of God. He actually wanted to get away as far as possible from the presence of God. Now, that's a rather odd thinking, isn't it? You know, when the Psalmist says, where can I run from your spirit? You know, if I go to the East, if I go to the West, you are still there. You are still there. Okay. We must know that we cannot run away from God. Okay. We cannot run away from the presence of God. But when and why do people try and run away from the presence of God? We know that if we are in the presence of God, God uh, demands holiness from our lives. You know? If we are living disobedient lives, we know that we want to enjoy his presence. So we go want to go away from God. So disobedience is the prime reason why we want to go away from God. Many people throughout history have thought that they could get away from God and escape the consequences of, you know, his action, my baby changing their location, you know, they say, if I change my position, if I change my residence, if I change my country that I'm living in, God won't be able to get up to me. No, no. God's call upon your life is still going to be there. It is never, we can never run away from God. Thirdly, it was an impulse decision, you know. It's like he lands up in Joppa and finds the first ship available maybe and says, okay, in a ship available for Tarshish, I will go there. That's a place which is as far as possible. Or maybe he land there and checked up, which is the furthest place from there and said, okay, I'll buy a, a, a ticket on that. It was an impulse decision. It was not really a well thought of decision because the Bible tells us over here, he found a ship going to Tashish. He found a ship. Going to Tarshish. Now remember, an impulse may be very brave, yet it could be. Jonah was very brave in embarking on such a long sea journey, but it was definitely a wrong impulse. An impulse may appear to be self denying, yet it could be very wrong. It cost Jonah much in money and comfort to go on this long journey, but definitely it was wrong. An impulse may lay claim to freedom, yet be wrong. Jonah said, am I not free to go anywhere I want to? Yes, he is free to go anywhere he wants to, but that impulse decision was wrong. An impulse may lead someone to do something that they would condemn in others. What would Jonah say to another prophet disobeying God? Would you have agreed with them? Not at all, isn't it? When another prophet was disobeying God, Jonah would have been the first one to say, hey, no, you cannot disobey God. But that which he would have condemned in others, an impulse decision made it a reality in his life. An impulse can make us do to God or others what we would never want to be done to our own selves. A lot of people say on an impulse decision, the Lord told me, the Lord said this in a, and have made wrong decisions. We need to be careful about any impulse decisions. That's a danger in that. There's also cost in impulsive decisions. The scripture tells us he paid the fare. You know, he got a berth, and you know? it seemed easy enough. Maybe the Jonah at this point know uh, felt that God was the one who provided the money for his fare and also gave him a berth that he could sleep. You know, but remember, this is the danger of being guided by circumstances a lot of people you now decide god's will for their life purely on the basis of if things have worked out circumstantial evidences oh things worked out for me so i know this is god's will not necessarily so remember when we decide to run away from god satan is happy to provide the transportation as well as the accommodation somebody has put it across this way So just because things work out, have things have clicked together, never assume that this is God's will. You have taken an impulse decision. Things have clicked together. Don't say this is God's will. No, no. Find out whether this was really his will. What false security might have Jonah seen as being in the will of God? Because everything was working in his favor, isn't it? You know, he had the exact fare, there was a ship that was waiting over there. He was also able to sleep soundly. He was also able to sleep soundly. Now, here again, we see the grace and compassion of God. The grace of God allowed him to get a good sleep before the storm came. Okay? The storm did not come as soon as he started that journey. The Lord says, okay, you have a good sleep. And then he sent the storm. Think for a moment the heart of God for this runaway. Prophet, It was Charles Spurgeon who said, if you sit down and try to find in the ways of God to you an excuse for the wrong which you mean to commit, the crafty devil and your deceitful heart together will soon conjure up a plea for providence. What does it mean? Saying, If you are trying, you know, from the circumstances to say, hey, this is the hand of God, this is the providence of God. When you know you are in the wrong, you will definitely find excuses, you will definitely find some rational reasons to prove that you are in the will of God. But nevertheless, when you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you are going, and you always have to pay your own fare. On the contrary, when you go the Lord's way, you not only get to where you are going, but He avoids the fare. That's the cost. That's the cost. Yeah, he paid for the fare and he ran into a storm. If only he told God, God, I'm willing to go. He would have reached the destination without any payment whatsoever and no storm whatsoever. Okay. Now, in verse four, we find that God prevents Jonah's fleeting attempts to run away. Okay. He prevents Jonah's escape. Verse 4 tells us this, but, again, remember another but over there, Jonah decided to run away, you know, but this is what God did, you know, rather God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, but this is what Jonah did. Now when Jonah decided to run away, but God steps in, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken out. Okay. The Lord sent a storm. God sent the storm. Now, we must remember again that apologies for disobedience are mere refuge for lies. This is Charles Spurgeon speaking. He said, if you do a wrong thing in the rightest way in which it can be done, it does not make it right. If you go contrary to the Lord's will, even though you do it in the most decent and perhaps the most devout manner, it is nevertheless sinful and it will bring you under condemnation. So Jonah would have said, everything is worked out. This is in the will of God. But the scripture tells us that God sent a storm. God sent a storm. It is the grace of God to seek out this disobedient servant of his and not allow him to remain in that disobedient sleep. He sent a storm so that he would get up from his slumber He would be shaken into reality. In Hebrew text, the last part of this verse is literally the ship thought that she would be broken to pieces. If you notice that scripture says so that the ship was about to be broken up in Hebrew thought, literally it is the ship thought. It's like a a graphic personification. The ship thought that it would be broken to pieces. God sent this storm. A very, very a violent storm. Now remember Jesus, when there was a storm, he was fast asleep. You know, He was in the will of God. He knew nothing is going to happen to him. But here, God sends the storm so that he would be woken up from his sleep, a big difference. In verses five and six, we read about how the sailors of the ship then respond to this storm. Remember, the storm is sent for Jonah, But the others are now affected. The sailors in the ship are now affected. It says, Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Okay. Look at some of these words again, the down words, down, down, down. You know, in Jonah 1, 3 we read that Jonah had gone down to Joppa, where he went down to a boat. Now in the face of a life-threatening storm, Jonah goes down into the bottom of the ship and lays down to fall into a deep sleep. So Jonah's downward spiral, you know, it's like, you know, going down and down and down and down, and finally he goes to sleep right down, okay. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of these, you know, sailors, yes, they are familiar with storms, but now they recognize that, you know, this is not an ordinary storm. This is a quite a different storm. So immediately they cry out to their gods. And the first thing they try and do is, you know, what they can do themselves, okay. The cargo, additional weights, you know, so that the ship would not be too heavy. And then they cry out to their gods to lighten the load. They throw this cargo out into the sea, you know, but, but, you know, is still fast asleep. The heathens are praying to their gods, you know, but. Jo, you know, Jonah, who worshiped the one true God, he is fast asleep. You know. What the captain hoped Jonah's God would do, he woke him up and said, cry out to your God, maybe your God will save you. you know. concern, he has a desire that Jonah's God will save them, but Jonah himself is not bothered whatsoever. Jonah showed no compassion you know, for the Ninevites. He showed no compassion for the sailors. He did not show any compassion for himself either, you know. So when in trouble, you know, man does his best to fix the problem, isn't it? Two options that were there for them, you know, okay, let's first try throwing off the cargo, you know, and then also cry out to God. You know. And that's an oftentimes, you know, the natural response of a person who is in trouble. As long as things are well, maybe they never cry to their God. So maybe they say, I don't believe in God. But as soon as a trouble comes in, or as soon as a, a storm comes in, as soon as something that is way beyond their control comes in, they cry out to God. But Jonah, Jonah was fast asleep. Jonah's ability to sleep under such conditions seems to be very unusual. It is the same Hebrew word Radam which describes Sisera's deep sleep that his exhaustion produced. Remember in Judges chapter 4, you find Sisera is fast asleep, you know, and, you know, the nail is pierced through his head, you know, deep sleep, you know. And it is also the same word that is used where the scripture says, God put Adam, you know, into a deep sleep, okay. It's the same word that is used here. So perhaps Jonah was both exhausted, you know, like Sarah, or God was the one who put him to sleep, you know, get your rest, I have some job for you, okay. So all the sailors were religious men, devout in their prayers to their gods, yet their gods were really nothing and could do nothing. There was one man on board who had a relationship with the true God who knew Yahweh, and who worshipped him, yet he was asleep. The tragedy, even in our situations today, Charles Spurgeon put it across this way, when he said, All around us there is a tumult and a storm. Yet some professing Christians are able, like Jonah, to go to sleep in the sides of the ship. The world is in turmoil. The world is in chaos. There are storms all around. No. But instead of we being the messengers to the people in this stormy world, That there is a God who cares, a lot of people who are just fast asleep, whatsoever. So, what does this sleepiness of Jonah speak to us? The nature of Jonah's sleep is also instructive, and too much like the sleep of the careless Christian. And someone has put it across so beautifully, like this, where they say, "Jonah slept in a place where he hoped no one would see him or disturb him." And sleeping Christians are likely to hide out among the church. You know, God has called us to be the salt and light of the earth, but we are more comfortable in the church rather than going out to do the mission that God has entrusted us with. Jonah slept in a place where he could not help with the work that needed to be done. You know, they were all out, bailing out, you know, throwing out, praying, but he was not bothered about that at all. He was fast asleep. Sleeping Christians stay away from the work of the Lord. They only bother themselves as long as I'm comfortable. That's all that matters. I don't want to be involved in the work of the Lord. That's a sleeping Christian. Thirdly, Jonah slept while there was a prayer meeting up on the deck. You know, we all pray to the our gods. You know, okay. but sleeping Christians don't like prayer meetings. You know, they stay far away from prayer meetings lest they get aroused from their sleep. Jonah slept and had no idea of the problems around him. Sleeping Christians don't know what is really going on. There was a storm. He was fast asleep. Ask yourself, do you recognize the storm that is around in the world today? What God is doing and the mission that God has given to each one of us? Or are we just sleeping and saying, I'm comfortable? Jonah slept while he was in great danger. Sleeping Christians are in danger but don't know it. Remember, there's going to come a time when you're accountable to God for the life that he gave us and for the mission that he has given to us. But if we sleep through our days and are concerned only about us and not for what is happening around us, then we are going to be in great danger. Jonah slept while the heathen needed him. Sleeping Christians snooze on while the world needs their message and their testimony. Are you a sleeping Christian? Well, has God called you on a mission? Yes, God has called each one of us on a mission. The Great Commission has been given not just to the 12 disciples, to each one of us, but run away from the presence of God. Have we found our own boats, made ourselves comfortable, our own setups and saying, this is what life is all about? Or are we, God has called us to do? It seemed ironic to Jonah that the sailors demanded that he call on his God. And for being on that ship was to escape his God. Verses seven and eight speaks about their discovery about who was responsible. Now, the sailors have never seen such a storm. They recognize there's something more to this storm. So in verse seven, they say, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? It seems to be a common pattern, you know, among those individuals to cast lots to find out, you know, who was, Responsible, okay, now, when the lot fell on Jonah, it is again interesting that they didn't jump on him, you know they didn't say, "Okay, you are the guy we will throw you out, you know, no, no, they looked at Jonah, he seemed to be such an innocent guy, fast asleep, you know could it have been that we made a mistake in the lots, you know, but remember the scripture is very clear, you know, man casts the lots, but God is the one who gives the right answer, isn't it? you know the scripture is clear. On that, you know. But here were these individuals, even the pagan sailors, who thought something different to the storm. And when the answer came in that Jonah was the one who was responsible, they still were not so sure about it. But because they thought Jonah could never be the guy because he seems so innocent. He's not like a criminal for whom the ship is going to sink, you know. Then proceeded to ask questions to Jonah, ask questions to Jonah. It is hard to know what motivated the sailors to think that the storm was sent because one of them had wronged their God, Okay. rather they come to that conclusion that it is because of someone's you know, gross you know, sin that this was the cause or to think how could this be the individual because the scripture tells us you know when the lot fell on jonah you know they immediately asked him they wanted to know you know as much from jonah are you the cause did you do something and then they asked further more questions where are you from which is your country what is your occupation you know so here were the sailors who were more compassionate on jonah rather than jonah being compassionate either on the sailors or on Nineveh itself. All this is speaking of object lessons that God wants to tell us, the compassionate heart of God. Now, once he's put in a tight corner, once the lot has fallen, and once it is confirmed that, yes, he is the cause, when they ask him all those questions, you find Jonah's response. You find Jonah's response. Jonah's confession is a central feature of this narrative. It gives us the context in a, in a, of this all the events that are happening. So Jonah tells them about who he is and what he is doing. In our verse in our 9 tells us, so he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So he tells them point blank, I am a Hebrew. Okay. In other words, you know, I'm one who worships Yahweh. And this Yahweh, you know, is the one who created heaven and the sea and the dry land. You know, he's saying, look here, here's a storm, and I'm worshipping the God who made the sea. So as a result, you know, it is because of my disobedience that the God of the sea has turned the sea a violent, you know so when they heard this the scripture tells us the men were exceedingly afraid they were exceedingly afraid okay and they said why did you do this why did you do this it is a tragedy over here that no one knew that jonah knew the truth about god okay but still his life contradicted this knowledge so much so that the pagan sailors turn around and ask him, hey, how can you do this? Why did you do this? You're saying you're believing in the one true God and the one who is in control, the one who is sovereign, and you go about disobeying him. How can you do that? That's a question that the pagans have asked. And if you notice, in a, that is what the, the pagan world around would also say when we say we believe In the sovereign God, the one who is in control, and live casual lives, live sleepy lives, and live as if it doesn't matter to God, the people will say, Hey, if this is what you believe in and this is how you are living, how can you do this? Why have you done this? Okay. Now, earlier they feared the storm, now they are afraid of this God, the creator of all creation. Jonah. He did not fear his God, though again, ironically, the pagan sailors did. Jonah professed faith in a sovereign God, yet by trying to escape from the Lord, he denied his belief in God's sovereignty. One cannot flee or hide from a sovereign God. Look at all the the contrasts over here. The sailors feared God now, Jonah, no fear. Okay. The sailors recognized, hey, this is the God of the heavens and the seas whom you have disobeyed. Why did you do this? But Jonah does not really bother. Now, when they ask him then, okay, in verses 11, he says, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? Okay. So they say, okay, this is a very grave situation. You tell us now, we do not know what to do. You tell us what we should do. Okay. Because the scripture says, for the sea was growing more tempestuous. All this conversation is going on, all this uh, processing is going on, and this storm is increasing time after time. So he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. What a decision. Okay. If he has really repented, you know, what should he have done? He should have actually said, You know, I'm sorry, I should have actually gone to Nineveh. You know, would you get me back to Joppa? Or would you take me to Nineveh? You know, or some other response. You no, know, but what is his response? He says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. You know, he doesn't have the guts to commit suicide. You know, he's running away from God. He still doesn't want to go to Nineveh. It's not that he has repented. He says, I would rather die, but he doesn't have the courage to kill himself. So he says to the sailors, you throw me into the sea so that I will die. But look at again, the compassion of the sailors, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Sailors and more compassionate. he is saying, kill me. These guys said, hey, we don't want to kill you. You know, they show more compassion. I wish and hope there was some other way that the storm would, and you know, stop. So they try their level best. But still, when it is only getting worse, you know, therefore, the scripture says, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Okay, they cry out to whom? Not to their gods. They cry out to God. They are recognizing that this God of Jonah is the one true God. So they come before him and saying, hey, we are innocent of this man's blood. This is what this man is asking us to do. And we are crying out to you and saying, you know, let us not perish for this man's life. So they picked up Jonah and threw him and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Once of the sailors now, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Okay. Think for a moment: the hand of God in this, okay. keeping the sailors from not dealing with him immediately pleading with him so that Jonah is able to present the gospel to them. If you were to say by showing that there is only one true God, you find the sailors responding to you know, the one true God and making their prayer before they throw him into the sea. And then as soon as the storms stop, you know, the scripture says the men fear the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and also took vows. In other words, they are saying now we know that the God of Jonah is the one true God, okay? Even though Jonah had no compassion for the sailors of his life or for the Ninevites, God's heart of compassion for the sailors, these pagan sailors, he used Jonah's disobedience, if we were to say, to convert them and to transform them. Jonah was willing to sacrifice his life to save everyone else on the ship, you know. Maybe that's how some people will look at it, you know. He wanted to give his life for the sake of the the sailors, you know. Or maybe he thought, you know, that I would rather put myself, you know, on the dependence on God. I throw myself into the sea, you know, let God decide. What is going to happen? But no matter whichever angle we look at it, you know, it was not his compassion. It was not his throwing himself into the Lord's arms. Because he didn't think that a big ship and a fish is going to swallow him up. For him, I want to get away from God. I still don't want to obey. Yes, the Lord has sent a storm, but I don't want to obey God. I'd rather die than obey God. This was his heart. This was his heart. Okay. Now, such a tragic you know, disobedience from Jonah's life. And this is why we would say that it was his double-mindedness. You know. He could have asked the sailors to sail back to Jonah, Joppa if he really intended to obey the Lord and go to Nineveh. His repentance surely would have resulted in God withholding judgment from the sailors, just as the Ninevites' repentance resulted in his withholding judgment from them. Jonah could have done that, isn't it? He says, look here, God told me to go to Nineveh. I did not go there. So if only you'd get me back to Jonah so that Joppa, so that I can and I get another ship to go to Nineveh, this storm will cease. If you had done that, you know, if you are truly, that would have been a sign of true repentance, you know. But he did not do that, okay. He even did not have the guts to kill himself, no courage. He says, let somebody else kill me, you know, so that, you know, maybe the sailor's life is saved, you know, but I don't want to, you know, do that which God has called me to do. So even though the sailors were Gentiles, they prayed to God and they offered sacrifice when they saw that these in another uh, one true god is a god Yahweh not only they've discovered the reason for the storm they found the storm seizing when they threw Jonah overboard they said hey this is the true god so definitely on the basis of that we can say that the soldiers and the sailors were definitely saved and converted so The immediate end of the storm proved that Jonah's God was real. Jonah's God was real. And the sailors then moved from fearing the storm to fearing the Lord. Now, before we close for this evening, in our practical messages, three final thoughts. Number one, every step out of the will of God is a downward step. Every step out of the will of God Is a downward step. By the way, we are closing at chapter number sixteen. In number seventeen, speaks about when he was thrown aboard. Now, what happened? And then we look at that the next week into chapter two. So the first thought: every step out of the will of God is a downward step. No one who ever disobeyed God went up or progressed. They only went down. Remember the progression: down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the sea. And later on, we find down into the belly of the great fish. Second thought, we get away quickly. We recover slowly. It is easy to go down. It is easy to get off the right path, easy to fall and descend. But the right road back is difficult and often very, very painful. It's like, you know, it's easy to go downhill, but it's difficult to climb uphill. Thirdly, Satan can work through circumstances just like God can. Satan can work through circumstances just like God can. Okay? He can make disobedience look good by means of favorable circumstances. Oftentimes, people think about God's will as, you know, it was favorable. It worked out well. Open doors. You know. No, no, those are not the methods, you know, to find out. What is God's will? Ask God, spend time with him. Jonah was very clear that God told him to go to in to Nineveh. Finding a ship was not God's will, you know, but you know, God used that, you know. King, God was compassionate. He used that not only to speak to Jonah, but he also used it to speak to the sailors as well. So remember he must have had a good time in that in a ship for that short period when he was fast asleep. Sin is fun for a while, but be not deceived. God is not mocked. Jonah is about to find that out the hard way when Eli finds himself in the belly of the fish. Questions before we close this evening. Number one: Jonah tried to get away from God's presence. Is this possible? How can we as Christians keep away? from God's presence. Number two, why do you think Jonah was able to sleep through the storm? How can we as Christians sleep spiritually? Number three, when you struggle to obey God, what are the most common reasons why? Something you would have a hard time doing if God asked it of you, why? In what areas in your life are you currently running away from God? Are you experiencing any storms as a result? What is stopping you from taking off your running shoes and kneeling to find a God that's been waiting for you to come back? In spite of our running from God, He pursues us and offers us mercy and grace. When have you benefited from a second chance? When have you been in a position to offer someone a second chance? Number six, God could ask you to do today that you would say no to? If so, and why would you say no? And finally, number seven, what is your biggest takeaway from this chapter this evening? Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jonah's life and for us that we can never run away from you of impulsive decisions, the cost of impulsive decisions, the thought that we can sleep through comfortable situations in life, not worried, not bothered about the world around us and the mission that you have given to us. Father, we pray that you'd find us as individuals who are like the sailors. In the midst of the storm, they turned to you. In the midst of the storm, they trusted in you and acknowledged you as the master. We pray, Lord, that even this evening, if any, have been running away, thinking that they can do it, knowing that we can never run away from you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would get them back maybe through a storm, maybe through some tough situation, that they would be able to recognize, Lord, that you are a compassionate God. You are waiting and willing to receive them back. We thank you, Lord, for your word to us this evening, and we pray that even this week you would help us. You have called us to do, even though it may be difficult, even though it may be something that we don't want to do, even though it may be even for our enemy. But, Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in doing that which you have called us to do even this week. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.